Welcome to Happily Ever After is just the beginning. Keeping your relationship not just together, but happy, and we mean truly happy, is part art and part science. You've come to the right place. Here's your host, Leslie Dorries. The soulmate view of relationships is based on finding the one person who will make you feel loved and accepted no matter what. It's a belief that if you can just find the one, all of life's challenges will be smoothed out and all of your inner demons will be vanquished. It's a really nice idea, but the problem is it's not real. We do enter relationships in the hopes of healing our inner wounds, but often end up frustrated and disappointed when our partners inevitably fail. So what are we to do? To help answer that question, I'm joined by Sarah Murphy. She is a psychotherapist who specializes in energy psychology and helps people find peace in themselves and their relationships, which, by the way, sounds fantastic to me. So, Sarah, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, you know, part of what, what brought you to my attention was you wrote an article titled The Role of Attachment in Romantic Relationships. And attachment theory is something that's kind of, it's been around for a while, but somehow, and I'm not exactly sure how, and maybe you can explain this, it's coming to the forefront, especially when it comes to romantic relationships. So let's start with the basics. What is attachment theory? Well, yeah, that is a great place to start. Um, There was some research done back in the 60s and 70s that looked at what happens, and and even probably starting back in the the 50s, looking at what happens to babies um, when their mothers are not available. And one of the primary researchers was a guy named John Bowlby. He was English, Uh and, Uh uh, and he was really interested in the role of attachment in um, parenting, and particularly with mothers and, and children. And one of his uh, students was a woman named Mary Ainsworth, and she designed these wonderful studies that are kind of the iconic studies in attachment, where she would um, have her graduate students go and follow moms and babies and tally how many times the moms and babies had a positive interaction with each other, how many times that they were making eye contact, or if the baby called for the mom's attention, you know, cried, (laughs) or, or called out for attention that the mom would respond to it. And then the moms and babies would come into a research center that looked like a playroom or a waiting room that had toys in it, and there was a one-way mirror, and the, the uh, mom the would sit down. Yes, the wonderful one-way one-way window, one-way mirror, and uh, and so the mom would would sit, and the baby would usually start to play, and then the mom would get up and leave. A stranger would come into the room and try to interact with the baby, and then the mom would come back into the room. So the researchers were really interested in how much did the baby play before the mom left, how upset did the baby get when the mom left, and how well did the baby interact with the stranger, and then how what happened after the mom and the baby were reunited. So those were like the, the data points. And... Uh, So it turns out that um, when they looked at the baby's behavior and they matched it to the mother-baby interactions, they found a striking pattern. So 
most of the babies and moms had a secure bond where the baby called for attention and mom would answer the call for attention. And when they went into the waiting room, the babies would play. When mom left, the baby would be extremely distressed. When the stranger came in, the baby wanted nothing to do with it. And when Uh the mom came back, the baby would cry, 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 then calm down and then go back to playing. So that was the secure attachment. So that's more kind of like the normal... um, productive, healthy way of interacting between mom and baby. Yeah, the babies were resilient. When the mom came back to the room, baby would calm down and go back to playing. So they they had confidence to go and explore. Mom provided that secure base from which they could go off and explore their environment. Uh So then there were moms who were very aloof with their babies and the babies would cry and the mom wouldn't pick them up. And um, when those moms and babies went into the playroom, the baby looked like it was completely ignoring mom. And mom Uh would get up and leave and the baby would just not even acknowledge that it happened. The mom would come back and the baby wouldn't acknowledge that she had returned. The baby wouldn't venture too far away from the mom, but it wasn't making a lot of eye contact with her. It wasn't trying to engage her in play. It wasn't really exploring much. It seemed like it was totally ignoring mom. The Uh interesting thing is that in more recent studies, they've uh, hooked up babies with... um, a blood pressure monitor and a thing that measures sweat, the galvanic skin response, both of okay. raising blood pressure and sweating would be signs of distress. So those babies, even though they look like they didn't care that mom left, they were sweating and their blood pressure was going up. So they are, in fact, upset when mom leaves, but they have learned not to show it. It's like, mom hasn't been there for me. I've tried to get her attention and it doesn't work, so I'm going to try to make myself convinced that I don't need her. That's a really interesting description because I have clients that that show that these days. Yeah, yeah, so is, it's such so a coping is, strategy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and and I tried to tell these people. I said, well, of course, this is perfectly normal because this is what you learned to do when you were when you were really really young. Exactly. So, exactly. is there a name for this kind of um, reaction? Yes, those are uh, that's. That's been called the avoidant attachment style. Okay. Avoidant attachment style. And then in the, the, the third category is the anxious attachment style. And these babies have a mom who's kind of unpredictable. Sometimes she's a little fussy and sometimes she's there for them and sometimes she's ignoring them. And um, those babies were also kind of stayed close to mom, but they were a little clingy to mom. They got really distressed when mom left the room, but they had a hard time calming down when mom returned. They just didn't have the same kind of resilience that the securely attached babies had. And those are called, that's the anxious attachment style. So those are the three attachment styles that were identified, or three attachment styles that were identified in these early studies about maternal child attachment. So when mom was attentive and responsive, baby was resilient and had a secure attachment style, and that's most of the time. When mom is unpredictable, a little fussy, and sometimes not there for you, you'll have the anxious attachment style, and then the avoid 
avoidant style is the one where mom is aloof and baby learns to act like it doesn't care and doesn't need anything. Right. So. It's the it's the equivalent it's the equivalent of I'm fine. I could do it myself. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 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 The myth of, of independence. Yeah. yeah. The the um, the Marlboro Man in formation. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I'm, I'm off. I'm the, the independent person. So, you know, I know that a lot of times. Um, when we're constantly, and again, I'm not of the Freud school of thought where we have to blame mom for everything. No, <laughs> no, no. Be, be, being a mom, I, you know. Absolutely. I, right there with you. you. <laughs> most of us are doing the best we can. Yep. But, you know, I've, I've read, um, and Terry Reel, who wrote the book, the New, the New Rules of Marriage, talks about this, and other people in our field talk about how we're trying to resolve some of these um, connecting issues in our romantic relationships. And so it would seem to me that attachment theory would have a lot to say about this. And I think that there's a lot of information. I'm not sure how much, is, how much research there is. Somebody was asking me if I could point to a, a research study, and I couldn't. So maybe you might know some about the connection between how securely or insecurely we were attached as infants to what, how it plays out in our romantic relationships? Um, that is a good question, and I know that there is some research, and I'll try to um, put my hands on that author and get that back, researcher and get that back to you. There's a, a great book called Attached, and mm-hmm. that summarizes some of that data and fleshes it out in a really um, beautiful, meaningful way. It's an excellent source. And I think that that book is kind of part of this movement of looking at attachment in adult relationships. Because back in the day when Bowlby and Ainsworth were doing their work, nobody was really thinking about what happens when we grow up. And especially, mm-hmm. I think, here in the United States, we have such the, the myth of independence. You know, we, mm-hmm. we kind of revere the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you're not supposed to need anybody. And um, you know, the Marlboro man, the cowboy mentality, that, that just the right. myth of independence. But it turns out that we, uh, we always need to have love and belonging in our lives and we continue to have attachment needs in our adulthood. And I think that it's... Um, a lot of people have been hurt by thinking that I'm not supposed to care, I'm not supposed to feel, I'm not supposed to need. And then there becomes a lot of self-judgment and self-criticism and not allowing ourselves to express this very basic part of our humanity. And I'm so glad that researchers are starting to look at this. And now people like you are starting to talk about this. And that is so auspicious, I think. Um, I wanted to say something about the moms and the babies in that study, and you're right. I agree 100% that we don't want to blame mom. And I always think, I remember when I was a young mom, and my my kids are in their late teens and early 20s, but even in those days, people 
didn't necessarily think that I should pick up my baby when he cried. And I had to debate a little bit with the grandparents about what Uh I was doing. And I was second guessing myself a lot. And I think that there have been a lot of cultural pressures that are, that have been over the decades kind of trying to get mom to counteract her maternal instinct. So I think it's a cultural phenomenon there too, but definitely let's not blame, blame mom or. And and this is also an important thing because, because there are different parenting styles across cultures as well, but I do agree. And there's a great experiment. It's the, it's the baby monkey experiment that Bowlby did. Um, Harlow. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. It was Harlow. It was Harlow who did, which was shows that we actually do need to be connected to others. Yep. Um, we are communal creatures. So, but anyway, but so, so what, how does this play out in our romantic relationship? So that's a, that, that's the, the question of the day, right? So what does that have to do with our adulthood and our romantic relationships? So I think especially in the modern American culture where we're so spread out and isolated, we don't have a whole lot of community interactions anymore. We're mostly getting to work, working, getting home, getting dinner on the table, maybe watching a little TV, going to bed and getting up and <laughs> rinse and repeat. Yeah, rinse and repeat. So we don't have too much opportunity to develop deep social bonds with other people. So our romantic partner becomes a really important person to fulfill those attachment needs that we all have. And we're, we've been missing the map, you know, like we're, we're wandering in this land without, without knowing what we're doing. (laughs) We don't know (laughs) that it's normal to have attachment needs, that it's normal to get our feelings hurt. It's normal to be looking to our partner to reassure us, to, to um, let us know that they're going to be there for us, that they still love us, that we're loved, and and all that stuff is just part of what makes us human. And we're walking around thinking that we're not supposed to have needs or wants, and then we get our feelings hurt without recognizing that that's what's happening. We start to build up resentments. We start to create distance between ourselves and our partner because we've been hurt and we haven't healed it, and the distance grows greater and greater, and then we have a 50% divorce rate because we don't have the economic imperative or the social imperative to stay married anyway and hearts are breaking all the time right and my and my ideal person the my soulmate you know because I'm always in search of my soulmate who if I could again this one person who's never going to hurt me which is like okay I you know that's and and then people go well if, if my partner's hurting me or not meeting my needs then they must be the wrong person and they're supposed to read my mind and anticipate my every want. Right. Yes. They're not supposed to have to say anything either. Right. Yeah. It's, you know. Because yeah. Because that's right. If, if they love me, they would just know. And I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, that's so my sad. school of marriage. So um, sad. Right. You know. And 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 again, it's it's this idea that it's scary to be looking to somebody else. Um, and so it would, be, it would be much easier if we were all the Marlboro men and just be these you know cool independent I don't need anybody right right people right but that's not most of us that's not that's not how we're wired that's not how we're wired and there are there are 
not just the maternal child interactions that set us up for our attachment patterns, but other things can happen that will affect how secure we are in our attachment. A lot of our identity is formed socially when we're in school. Not everybody has Uh a great experience there, so that can cause us to be uh, anxious and and question if we're really going to be loved and accepted or cause us to kind of distance ourselves because we don't want to get hurt. And then other um, romantic relationships that fail can leave us with big scar tissue that we don't know how to heal and Uh we end up kind of doing the same thing over and over again without realizing that we're doing it. We engage in distancing behaviors to try to protect ourselves or we chase somebody who's never going to be available for us or that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with the I'm going to push you away because you're going to leave anyway and when you do, you know, I, 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 I I say, well, then you never really love me. Well, of course, I'm not looking at the part that I'm doing the pushing away. Right. So. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So, so heartbreaking. So sad to see people hurting each other. And so that's why this kind of conversation is so important because um, it's all solvable, learnable, hackable, and we just need to get the word out and let people know how to be loved. So this is Happily Ever After. It's just the beginning on webtalkradio.net. I'm Leslie Dory, and I'm talking with Seth fellow therapist Sarah Murphy about how the way we are raised influences how happy we are in our romantic relationships. And if you want to have a happier marriage, I encourage you not to wait one more day. Take a moment and send me an email or give me a call and schedule your Create Your Happily Ever After Marriage strategy session. You can reach me at by phone at area code 919 9240463 again that's 9199240463 or you can send me an email at leslie l e s l i at foundationscoachingnc.com that's f o u n d a t i o n s coaching and is in nancy c is in charlie.com and because because as sarah was saying right before the break there are things we can learn. Mm-hmm. There are <laughs> things like, that we can learn. Which seems to be, you know, it's like, you know, we, we learn, we have to learn everything else. I don't know why people think romantic relationships are different, but that's why I do this show. Right. So, you know, <laughs> Thank and, you. And one, and one of the things that we were talking about is, is how the interaction plays out because we have our expectations of our partners. They may or may not know what our expectations are, but they sure as heck know when they haven't met them because usually we don't behave well. So how does a person's view of their partners change based on their attachment profile? Right, or differ based on the attachment profile. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, if two lucky souls come together and they both have a secure attachment style, they're more likely to um, answer each other's what the Gottman's call bid for attention or bid uh-huh. for attachment, bid for connection. So, uh-huh. um, you know, if you're looking out the window and you see a cardinal and you say, hey, honey, look, there's a cardinal, then honey comes, stops what honey's doing and looks right. at the cardinal and says, wow, it's so red. <laughs> and, right. And then we've had a little moment. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. That's okay. Yeah, it's like, yeah, they, they, come, and, they come and recognize that you're talking to them and, and interact with you. Exactly, exactly. But um, so in, in, that, in that ideal world, we just keep 
answering each other's bid to connect. We just keep showing up for each other. We basically believe that we're lovable, that we're going to be loved, that the world is safe. And that safe relationship gives us this launching pad from which we can, in our adulthood, go out and explore the world. We can tackle our... our um, we can chase our dreams. We can follow our dreams. We can go for that uh, next big adventure and push ourselves to grow, always knowing that just like the baby in the playroom, that uh-huh. there's a, a secure attachment figure who's kind of unconditionally there for us. And that's the ideal scenario. So yes. those people are usually not showing up in our offices. Though, right? <laughs> so, um, so one of the things that I think is just so important to remember is that the patterns that get set up, it's, it's not our fault. It's not mom's fault. It's not about blame. And please don't be feeling shame if if this is your story. It's just kind of great information like, aha, now I've got the map. Now I can navigate through this territory. So Uh somebody who's got more of an anxious attachment style will always be wondering, is that person really going to be there for me? They're just a little bit more anxious, anxious, and they don't necessarily feel that secure base from which they can go out and explore the world. And if they say, hey, honey, there's a cardinal, but honey really can't come and look at the cardinal right then, they'll feel hurt and really wonder, does honey actually care about me? And, you know... So, so sometimes your partner can't, right? And you'll give exactly. them the benefit of the doubt if you're secure, and you won't be able to give them the benefit of the doubt if you're insecure in your attachment. attachment. So would somebody who, who self-identifies as a people pleaser, would they tend to be somebody maybe with anxious attachment? Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a um, perfect way to sum it up, yes. Uh, always have to make sure that everybody else's needs are met, and my own needs don't matter. And, yeah, absolutely. I'll, do, I'll okay. turn myself into a pretzel to make sure that everybody's taken care of, but I will never take care of myself or expect anybody to help me take care of myself. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So what happens with somebody who maybe have an avoidant profile in a relationship? So the avoidant type will often get mislabeled as a narcissist because they are so overwhelmed by closeness because it's so unfamiliar to them. Uh-huh. And um, and so what they do is they engage in, I, I think I referenced this term before, distancing behaviors. So uh-huh. they will... Um, They'll, they'll just kind of think about their partner in a negative light, for one thing. Um, notice the, the, the flaws in their partner and spend a little bit more time on that. They will not be the one who comes to the window to look at the cardinal. They will uh, end a relationship before it gets too close. They'll describe feeling smothered or suffocated by a partner who's very loving. Mm-hmm. And they do things to try to create emotional distance and emotional space because they're not comfortable with that closeness. They trained themselves early. Usually they've trained themselves early on, but sometimes it can be the fallout of a of a devastating heartbreak. But mm-hmm. usually train themselves early on. I'm not going to get close. I'm not going to let you hurt me. And so with 
not consciously. It's all very subconscious, but they just do things to push the person away and to distance themselves emotionally because being close feels scary. Yeah, that sounds – because I get a lot of um, things about – people saying that they can't trust their partner or they're afraid, you know, there are trust issues or they're afraid of trusting. And that to me is also an indication that maybe there's some avoidant tendencies going on because, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because yes, you have to really open up. You have to kind of put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a scary thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And then just to complicate the picture even a little bit more in a a pattern that's almost diabolical, the anxious attached person and the avoidant attached person often end up coupling. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, those those two atoms form this molecule, and it is such an unhappy molecule. Yes. (laughs) And, uh, and And the avoidant person probably makes the anxious person even more anxious, and the anxious person's anxiety makes the avoidant person feel even more suffocated. So it's just, it's, it's so sad to see it happen, and it happens a lot. Sometimes it's referred to in the literature as the distancer-pursuer relationship, uh-huh. um, with the distancer being the person who has the avoidant attachment style and the pursuer being the one who is anxious. It's a very challenging problem to tackle. You, you know, in order to make a relationship work, both people have to really buy in, and the avoidant attachment people are tough to work with because they often just don't want to, not universally, but if right. they don't want to work on it, then, you know. Yeah, well, that's, that's, right. that's the whole thing. If somebody doesn't want to work on something, but this does kind of bring up the next question is, you know, is there anything that an anxious or an avoidant, you know, type can do to, to become more right. comfortable, to become more securely attached using the lingo? Or is, are these things just permanent? Oh, thankfully they're not just permanent, and that's such a great question and such a good thing for us to to get to. Um, luckily, we human beings are adaptive, and we are resilient, and we can become more resilient. So an avoidant type who recognizes that there are benefits to being in a couple. And and it's well known that people who are in healthy relationships not only have the financial advantage that usually comes from being in a two-income household versus one, but they Uh also have greater sense of well-being and are typically happier. And also, really interestingly, they don't get sick as much. When they do get sick, they get better faster. When they have surgeries, they recover faster. If they have pain, they don't have it as much. Having that secure partnership brings a lot of benefits financially, emotionally, mentally, and also physically and physiologically. It's very concrete and very well documented. So the avoidant type who sees that and says, you know, I want those good things, so maybe I can recognize that when I'm doing these distancing behaviors, when I'm mentally criticizing my partner and pointing out all of their flaws, that's just me doing my distancing thing, and I'm choosing differently because the payoffs are great if I choose to be in a healthy relationship. Then that gives the opportunity for some flexibility. Um, Uh The anxious type can similarly recognize that there are benefits to being coupled up, but but there needs to be some... um, 
some of that grounding and the sense of being enough, being good enough, being uh, Mm -hmm. lovable and worthy. And so recognizing that all of the anxiety that we're working out in our partnership is a reflection of a message that we have about ourselves that we didn't do it on purpose. It's not Mm -hmm. really who we are. It's just a learned pattern of behavior and thinking. And when we start to recognize that, oh, that's what I'm doing, this is why I'm doing it, now I can choose differently. And then, you know, they could hire a coach like you or a therapist like me <laughs> to work with them. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's, and it's such an interesting thing because it really is, I mean, I, I don't necessarily like this because it makes it sound um, so superficial, because it, but it's the stories that we tell ourselves, it's the but it, they're not really stories, and that's why I think it's a, I, I don't necessarily like that term mm-hmm. because it makes it sound like, oh, I could just choose to think differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is some of that, and I think mm-hmm. you know, that sometimes with the avoidant personality, I think the whole gratitude, you know, one of the things I have my clients do is it's like, okay, I want you to identify three things each day that your partner did that made you feel good. Because it forces them to then look at the positives that their partner's doing. And I think it probably also works for the anxious um, people as well. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, what kinds of things did your partner do for you? And then it's like, well, oh, maybe I am lovable. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's a, you know, and, and when you do that regularly, it actually does change what you pay attention to. Absolutely, absolutely. That's beautiful. The gratitude practice is so important, and um, and I, I I hear what you're saying about you know using the word story makes it sound superficial, like it's a like it's a make believe thing. Mm-hmm. I I use this kind of weird expression that I don't know if I learned it or if it just like came to my mind, but I I, I often say we live into the words that we speak especially the silent words that we're speaking about ourselves and our own minds. We create our life out of that. That inner dialogue is the template on which we're Mm -hmm. building our life. So when we can peel back and recognize some of those words that I'm speaking about myself and how the world works are not necessarily true and they're certainly not helpful, then that gives me the opportunity to, to pause, like, oh, uh-huh. let me distance myself from that line of thought and try out a different frame, recognizing that that line of thought, again, came from patterning that was set up probably when I was a child or because my heart was broken later. It's not uh-huh. my fault. I didn't do it on purpose. It's not who I am. But it's what my it's what's creating my life and i i love that that because you know i sometimes think my clients think i'm I'm a little crazy because i i pay close attention to the words that they use especially when they're they're describing themselves Mm -hmm. Um, because it really is an indicator of their belief system Mm -hmm. and you know, sometimes, and, and I know that this is part of cognitive behavioral therapy, it's like, you know, if somebody says, well, I never do anything right or I always mess up, it's like, okay, well, if you can find one time where that's not a true statement, then it's mm-hmm. not true. Mm-hmm. And, and it really is that, that way about, you know, we, we could talk that way about our partners or about our relationships. And if you can find an instance where that's not true, then that gives you the opportunity to reframe or 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 create a different reality absolutely beautiful 
Well, this has been wonderful, and we could continue to talk about this forever. Yep. <laughs> I think you and I could I mean, do that. It's so important. It's so important. But can you give people some information about where they can read more of your good work? Because I know that you do spend a lot of time on this, um, and maybe mm-hmm. some other other information. Yeah, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity, and thank you so much for having me on your program. It's been really fun to talk to you. So my name, again, is Sarah Murphy, and I am a therapist and also do some coaching in Pennsylvania. My office is in Bryn Mawr, outside of Philadelphia. And my website is www.transformative-therapy.com. And on my website, there is a link to my blog, and I write regularly about issues affecting couples and relationships. So, again, the website is www.transformative-therapy.com. Terrific. And, you know, while it's, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, and while it's easy to think relationships are natural, that doesn't mean they aren't complicated. <laughs> complicated doesn't have to mean impossible. When you understand what you bring to the relationship, instead of focusing on the perceived faults of your partner, you're on the way to having a relationship that will really work. And so hopefully one of the things that you'll do is to keep listening to this show and learning more about all the wonderful people out there who are who have wonderful blogs, who have wonderful ideas that will help you guys get where you want to go. And so until next week, stay loving. Mm-hmm.